came right because it, I took some practice and I got it wrong at 8am. Such a pity. Worked so hard. Does the name Duke Kahanamuku mean anything to you? Try it again. Oh, yes, Dennis. Do you know, you know who it is? Yes, surfing. Yeah. Go, Dennis. There you go. You see, if it doesn't mean anything to you, I'm going to say, this is, I'll give it away now. There he is. If it doesn't mean anything to you, this, this man, it really should. Let me educate you for a while. This is part of Australian history that everyone should know. Uh, he was a Hawaiian Olympic swimmer. And he actually had a gold medal at the Stockholm Olympics in 1912. Very good swimmer. December 1914, he's most famous because he's the guy who brought surfing to Australia. And this, his statue is at Freshwater Beach. You can see it there on the right. That's his statue at Freshwater Beach. Uh, you can't miss it as you get to Freshwater, just north of, north of Manly. Uh, very well known. Now, I think he is surfing's first evangelist. There you go. You see, a number of years as a young boy growing up in Hawaii, just before he came to Australia, he only came to Australia, I think, in his early 20s. So as a young boy growing up in Australia, he saw something that changed his life forever. What he saw was Polynesian men standing up on planks of wood and surfing. And it changed his life forever because from that moment on, he, be, he, he took the message, uh, he took the, um, how, how else could I say this? Uh, he took surfing to the world. So, standing up on a board, it wasn't Duke's idea, of course, he saw it first among the Polynesian people. But he saw it, he was hooked. And you see, what he witnessed that day as a small boy would be something he would never, ever forget. Never forget. And he thought to himself, this had to be shared. Had to be shared. It had to be experienced and even across the world. So, he's surfing's first evangelist. The disciples, on that particular day, some 40 days after the resurrection, on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, when they saw the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ... It was a sight, too, that they would never forget. And it changed them forever. And as we'll see, it was something that had to be shared. But what difference would the ascension of Jesus make? That's our question this morning. It's a big question. That's one I want you to remember the whole time. What difference does the ascension of Jesus make? Will things be different? Well, yes and no. Uh, that's... That's a, that's a bit of a frustrating answer to a question, isn't it? Yes and no. But it's not uncommon. Um, there are many cultures around the world where that type of answer to a question is, is quite common. I remember asking a, um, a Pakistani taxi driver overseas once, after talking about Ricky Ponting for what seemed like an age, um, uh, whether he knew a certain street. And his answer was, yes and no. I thought, oh, here we go. What does that mean? Yes, he does. Well, actually, he first started off with no. He said, no, I do not know this particular street. Then he said, but yes, I have a friend who does. And he proceeded to ring his friend. Does the ascension of Jesus change his relationship with us? Will things be different? Well, Luke's answer is yes and no. But before we see how this is the case, uh, let's recap a little bit from last week. All right. So between his resurrection and ascension... Jesus teaches the apostles about the kingdom of God for a period of 40 days. 
In verses 4 and 5 of Acts chapter 1, he explains to the, the 11 the point they have reached in the unfolding uh, of God's purposes. They're not to go into ministry immediately, but they're to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gift promised by God the Father. So 40 days after the resurrection, the disciples then ask a question which is a fair question. It's actually it's a good question for them to ask. Uh, you can see it in verse 6. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So as the resurrected Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, resurrected Messiah, will Jesus now bring down the curtain of history to restore Israel to her rightful place and reign over all creation? Uh, the question gives us a good indication of where their heads are at as well, doesn't it? And how they're thinking all this through. But Jesus, what he does is in his answer, he redirects their thinking. He redirects their concerns by explaining that before uh, what theologians might call the consummation of the kingdom, we normal people might call it Jesus' return, uh, before that happens, well, there's work to be done. And it's not merely human work, by, it's, it's spirit-empowered work, spirit-empowered witness. They would be God's witnesses first to Israel and then to the nations. Through the witness of Jesus' apostles, the kingdom would be restored to Israel, but not in a nationalistic and political sense, but by the Spirit's work through the gospel as people repent and believe. In fact, the ascension of Jesus into heaven, well, guarantees Jesus' return when he comes again to restore all things. And that's using the words that Peter uh, speaks in chapter 3. So, the apostles are commanded to wait in Jerusalem where they will receive power when the, when the Spirit comes upon them and that's a baptism that John the Baptist even spoke about and we read that in chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. And the effect of the Spirit's coming will be that the apostles will be Jesus' witness to, uh, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth and out it went. And Acts really is, uh, well that's the way the Spirit goes out in Acts. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You see, the apostles needed to learn, and perhaps like us, that ministry is a supernatural activity. Uh, being Jesus' witnesses is a supernatural activity. It's not done without the Spirit. So they needed to wait. You see, the church is not merely a human institution. It's a divinely inspired group of people who trust in God to do his work through his gospel in the power of the Spirit. Okay, well, let's, let's go back to our original question. Will, will things be different because of the ascension? Well, yes, things will be different. Uh, it's sort of obvious, really, but let's look at verses... Let's read verses 9 and 11. Let's see why it's obvious. Uh, Verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, Jesus, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky when he was where, as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So how will things be different? Well, the most obvious answer is that Jesus is not there physically with them anymore. So yes, okay, things will be different in that way. Jesus is taken up into heaven, we're told. However, the two men, these sort of 
a little bit mysterious, aren't they? But I think we'd just we'd probably call them angels in the correct sense. They're messengers and people uh, God had put there to give them a message. So these two men reassure the apostles that just as Jesus has been taken up, just as he's been ascended, well, he's going to come back as well. And you see, that's why the ascension confirms or, or guarantees uh, Jesus' return. The resurrection, well, that showed that Jesus had no power, no, sorry, that, Jesus, that, that death had no hold on Jesus or over Jesus and confirmed that Jesus is who he said he is, the, the Messiah, the Son of God. But the ascension is like a coronation of Jesus, God's Son at the right, Father's right hand, a position of authority restored by the Father to his rightful place. The ascension, you see, proclaims Christ's triumph over sin and death. And it's why I showed you that little, um, I guess, C.S. Lewis's depiction of, uh, I, I think really of Christ ruling with his people. They're very creative and there's Aslan, there's Peter and Lucy and Susan and Edmund. Uh, as I said, it's very British, they love their pomp and ceremony, they love all that sort of stuff. But in C.S. Lewis's mind, here is a depiction of Christ ruling with his people but it's a, picture, a depiction of Christ's triumph. Uh, Christ, if you know the story, uh, God's triumph, Christ's triumph over sin and death. Uh, crowned and ruling Narnia triumphant. That's what, the, that's what the ascension does. Jesus now rules. He occupies the highest place. Remember at the start of the service I read from Philippians 2. Uh, Jesus occupies the highest place as Lord of all. He's ruling now ascended in heaven. Uh, and exercising universal dominion. That's why Christians use the word sovereign the whole time. Exercising universal sovereignty, dominion over this whole world. And so the ascension establishes the conditions under which the church is called to serve. See what I mean? uh, the ascension was the secret of the early church's unquenchable zeal and optimism in the face of life-threatening opposition. It kept them going. Uh, they knew that Jesus ruled and was ruler over all, so it gave them a sense of peace, it gave them confidence. And the gift of the Spirit was a, was a, a flow of life, like it is today, from heaven, uh, like a conduit from heaven, from, uh, from heaven to us, God's people, uh, the church. And the ascension then made a deep impact on the apostles. Not only was it the site itself on the Mount of Olives, not only was that unforgettable, but what it meant was even more extraordinary to them. They realised the ascension was God's ultimate declaration of Jesus' lordship. It was the ultimate confirmation that he is who he said he is. And so the ascension became the climactic point of the apostles' preaching, so much so that they, the apostles died for it. Uh, and you remember Stephen as well. But Stephen's last words before the stones were flung towards his head were, were speaking of Jesus sitting ascended at the right hand of the Father. So, with Jesus ascended into heaven uh, and not physically with us, yes, uh, that is, things will be different. That is different. But on the other hand, no, uh, things will not be different. Jesus is still Lord of the church and he'll continue to guide and direct and rebuke and encourage through his spirit. So let's flesh this out a little and see how. And we're on point three of our outline. When Jesus uh, ascended, there are about 120 believers, we're told. After the crucifixion, their hopes, 
were crushed, weren't they? They, they hid away. They certainly didn't show their faces. But with the resurrection, well, that changed everything, didn't it? Their, their gloom was replaced with hope and joy. So how will they respond now? How will the, the, these believers respond now to Christ's ascension? Will they shrink back again? Will, will it be hopeless despair once more as their Lord departs from them? Remember, that was why they were so worried when Jesus said he was going back in John, end of John 13. Will it be like, uh, you know, that, like the footy team who loses their star player, um, who, who makes it all happen, perhaps the captain, who certainly scores all the points. And they say to themselves, well, there's no way we can win now. He's not with us. And they mumble to themselves, sort of depressed in that way. Or maybe it's like the, you know, like the teacher who leaves the classroom and the students get up to mischief. Will it be like that? I don't know. Well, it could be seen as a bit of a surprise to find the disciples back in Jerusalem. And what are they doing? Well, they're, they're praying. They're waiting. They're waiting and praying in faith. They're obedient to Jesus' word. Peter seems to be in charge. See that in verse 15? And acts like a spokesman. He stands up and speaks to them all and recognises the need to replace Judas. And doing that would be a fulfilment of prophecy. He quotes Psalm, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Although he may also be quoting those passages just simply to show that leadership, replacing leadership is good practice. Uh, it's a, a practice taught in the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures. And to qualify as an apostle, verse 21, Peter says, they must be a man who has been with the other apostles the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among them beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from them. For Peter says, one of these, and Joseph, he's the guy who's got lots of names, are Joseph and Matthias. Uh, between those two, one of those, they must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And that's, that's what apostleship's really about. That's the main task of apostleship, that they have to be a, a witness to the, resu- to the, uh, the main, a witness with the rest of the apostles of the resurrection. So the two names are put forward, Uh, they pray for guidance and lots are cast. Now this is probably getting two stones, so one with Joseph's name on it and then one with Matthias' name on it. They throw the two stones into a bag, this is most likely how it was done, they shook it up a bit and then whatever stone fell out out first, well that was the person that was decided they'd go with that person. And so Matthias ends up being chosen uh, and joins the apostolic group. It would be the last recorded incidence in the Bible of a lot being cast to determine God's will. The last one we hear of. Why is that? Well, of course, because the Spirit comes. That's why. Today, uh, post-Pentecost, we live in that age, don't we? We live in the age where the Spirit is, is available to all of us. We continue to be guided by the Spirit through the Spirit-inspired Word of God here in our Bibles. Indeed, it was by the Spirit that these words were written down and proclaimed by the apostles. So it's no longer necessary to cast lots or any equivalent uh, to determine God's will in our lives. Uh, a number of years back, just when Michelle and I finished Bible college, I might have told you this story before, I apologise if I have, um, but um, we had to make a, a decision about where to go post-Bible college training and it came down to uh, Perth or Adelaide. And uh, I won't tell you the whole story and what happened after, but we had to make that decision. How do we make a decision like that? 
both options were equally good. They were both very good decisions, good options. We could have gone either way, it wouldn't have mattered. But we weren't sure which way to go. We wanted to know, wonder what, wonder what God thinks. Does God say, should I go this way or this way? What, what, what's God's will in this situation? Both good decisions. So what do we do? Well, we, we flipped a coin. That's what we did. We flipped a coin and, uh, well, it, it landed on Adelaide and we went to Perth. Um, they were both good decisions. It didn't matter where we went. Both good decisions, didn't matter. We ended up taking the, um, the, the Perth route. So why does, Luke, why does Luke include all this? All this detail. And you know what? Matthias isn't mentioned again. He's not mentioned again in the whole of Acts. How about that? Uh, why didn't Luke just go straight from the Ascension to Pentecost? Well, first... Jesus' betrayal was a major failure in leadership and that needed to be acknowledged and the apostolic leadership group needed to be made right. There needed to be continuity between the Old Testament 12 tribes of Israel, that's what the 12 tribes of Israel represented God's people in the Old Testament and that continuity into the New Testament with God's people being represented by the 12 uh, apostles. You see, Luke wanted, to, Luke wanted to ensure a warts and all coverage of the history of the early church. Remember Luke 1 verse 1? Why does he write to his friend Theophilus? He writes to his friend Theophilus so that he may know the certainty of what happened. He's interested in the truth, warts and all. Which means, well, Luke doesn't shy away from sharing about ugly incidences in the church throughout the book of Acts. Uh, Chapter 5, there's Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, There's the bickering of the widows in chapter 6. There's Peter's reluctance to heed God's call in chapter 10. Um, And Paul even gets a bit testy with John Mark in chapter 15. See, the point is the early church, just like as God's church today, are to recognise our own frailty. The early church's example, and Luke, that's why Luke includes it here, sets the precedent for churches today. Sin and failure need to be acknowledged and dealt with. But by their praying for guidance in verse 24, that reassures us of the Lord's involvement in the church. Uh, In this case, the election of Matthias. It shows us that Jesus is involved and interested in the church, warts and all, and that he continues to lead and guide from heaven through his spirit. Nothing is outside of his scope of control. All right, I've got in your outline there three responses that we can have uh, as we finish things up here. First is what we must not do. So we must not think of ministry, of church, even ourselves as Christians in merely human ways. As followers of the Lord Jesus, if that's you today, as his church gathered together... We must not think of ourselves as without the Spirit. So what we may do or what we we can do. What we can do is focus more on Christ's role. That is, his rule over all things and his uh, direction through his word of his church. The church is the only institution on earth that is not merely human. Have a think of it. That actually struck me during the week. It seems so obvious. 
but I've never really thought about it. Maybe you have. It's the only institution on earth that's not merely human. That's it. The church. Jesus directs and guides his church from heaven. And we have a unique role, unlike any other group. See, we're not a club, are we? We're not a club. Uh, We have a unique role to represent Jesus. God's church, we must, as God's church, we must recognise this unique role. We must invest our confidence in the Lord to guide and direct us and believe that God will ultimately fulfil his purposes actually through you and I. There's a thought, isn't it? God's fulfilling his purposes through us, his church. A great error is to behave as if we only have human and material resources available to us. See, the truth is we need the resources provided by God's Spirit. And those resources are the Word of God and prayer. So finally, what we must do, well, we must realise that as God's church, well, active planning and strategising, applying good business principles and so on, they're all useful, but they're not what's essential. What's essential is using the tools of God. What are the tools of God? The Bible and prayer. They're the tools of God. We open God's toolbox, that's what we use. The resources God gives us by his spirit. So it's a a prayerful dependence on Christ and his word. That's a good way to put it. A prayerful dependence on Christ and his word. That must be our first response, our our response to serving as God's people in the world. So how about we do that now? How about we pray and respond to God in prayer and, uh, and then we'll have some time for questions or comments. See how we go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you rule in heaven today, that you have authority and dominion over all things. And we thank you, Lord, by your spirit, you speak to us through your word. And we pray that as we, um, as, Lord, we depend on you and trust in you, we'd use your tools, the word of God and prayer. Thank you, God, that you listen to us. And, Lord, thank you that you're in charge of all things. Lord, we pray that you'd use us as your witnesses. We pray that you'd empower us by your spirit to be witnesses for Jesus. And as we go through Acts, we'll hear more about this, but we, uh, we thank you, Lord, that we can gra- take great comfort that you are indeed ruling all things and in controlling all things and you're interested in your church care for us and you love us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.